Good morning. My name is Josh. I'm a pastor for discipleship here at Stonebridge. Uh, I'm very eager to uh, preach here. The uh, entire passage of Hebrews, uh, it'll kind of be a flyover of the, of the whole passage there. There's a lot to, uh, to work through, and so just uh, I feel it's some of the task of the, the sermon here is just to help us to digest all of it. Um, and so um, a lot of what Doug just read for us uh, will be kind of the, the, the big point at which the whole passage kind of turns to, to something from what it was before now to something else. And so I've had them read that, um, but we'll be going through the whole thing and seeing how Jesus' blood completely changes the way in which we worship um, today. I also wanted to, uh, to give you just a, a, I don't know, just a little helpful, I don't know, hint or, or whatever for next week. Um, uh, on Sunday will be Easter Sunday. We'll, we, we anticipate some more people, family members or whatever to be here. Um, uh, sitting in the uh, front row, I was the only one today in the front row. Uh, I encourage you to come to the front row because y'all sing so great. Um, one of the, a great little uh, line that I, that I use uh, with our family to, um, uh, to remember hospitality is park far, sit close. On Easter, that's a great park far away from the building, sit close. Anyone who's never been here, they're going to want to sit in the back, you know, and just kind of get in. But you can now say selfish, selflessly, I just want to help the people who will be here. But selfishly, you can come sit close and hear everyone else sing because it's so great. Um, so just a little bit of a, uh, a selfless, selfish plug for you next week. Uh, however, whatever your motive is on that, you've got, you've got a lot to work with there. Um, but getting to our, uh, into our passage here, um, Hebrews 9, it's, it's so great. It's so wonderful. Um, but as I'm thinking through this a bit, yesterday I find myself um, with the nice weather uh, picking up sticks in our backyard. We're doing a bit of spring cleanup. Uh, it's about the time to do that. Uh, and so I pick it up sticks and, uh, and this could be a nice little simple task, you know, whatever. Uh, and uh, I find myself wondering kind of angrily, uh, like, didn't Derecho take care of all this? Like, are we, why, why must we have more sticks? You should just blown them away for eternity. And now I'm here picking up sticks in my backyard again. Um, wow, so grateful for beautiful trees, aren't I? Um, the, uh, and then we go inside, and, and some of our spring cleanup is picking up uh, just every single room, just kind of get like that thorough cleaning um, that happens. And uh, so we pick up a lot of uh, toys and stuff. Um, we've got three girls, uh, all under the age of, uh, of nine. And so what that usually is, you know, you find like, um, like a veggie straw next to a, a Barbie skirt, like under the couch. Like that's kind of what our cleanup is these days. And uh, one's disgusting, the other one's kind of, I don't know, not helpful for, you know, whatever. Anyway, let's move on. Uh, the, uh, but we have our girls because we really want to like discipline them and we want to, we want to give them that, that intuitive, you know, I have things, I'm responsible for what I have, kind of, a, kind of an internal, you know, thought that we just have them help us with the cleanup. And, uh, uh, but there's always a part, you know, there's so far you can go in thoroughly cleaning that it'll like break a child, you know? And so, and so we go so far and then we let them, you know, go, go play a bit while we get all the other kind of minutia um, of, of cleanup. But it's always about one-to-one -one for that moment that we release them to go play that I've noticed that it, the things seem to, like we start to get doubles of the stuff we have. You know, like, uh, like you're reaching under the couch and I pull out a book and I'm like, I seriously just put this on the, on the bookshelf. Do we have two copies of this? How did this get here? 
And, you know, then just then I hear Stacy around the corner. I was like, I just picked this thing up. Why is it out? You know, and, uh, and, so, uh, and so I think that we may not have copies here, but we have this constant state of, I guess, kids pull toys out when they play. Well, maybe this is, uh, maybe this is uh, uh, not so much your, your situation right now in life. Maybe you have uh, a work desk that always has those papers and it feels like it's that annoying, disheveled mess that you wish it were tidier than it was. And then you maybe take a day off and, uh, or, or that, that the point of the end of your week is like, this will be clean. The whole desk will be clean. And then you come back, you know, a week later and you're like, well, I didn't last long, did it? So, and there aren't kids there. So it must be something to do with us as well. Um, or if you are, uh, or if you've, you've, you've gotten into the world of, of, of email within, within work and you find that you can never keep your inbox clean, you, you send one email away and seven come back. It, uh, it happens that way. Um, and it feels that way um, oftentimes. We build up kind of a habit to this because we have it everywhere, this, this constant work of tidying up, of picking up these things or, or whatever, making things nice and clean. We, we build that, that up in a way that we really notice it when we hit kind of a, a change in life. When you go from college into, into kind of the young career side, you start to understand, whoa, there's there, maybe I didn't have enough of these muscles. This is a bit overwhelming and feels like adulting. But then once you get into that, you just have these muscles and then you become an empty nester and you realize I don't have to run around like crazy with this taxi cab like car and, and what do I do with all the muscles I've built up here? Or maybe if you've, uh, if you've, if you've recently retired, you're experiencing some of this where you, where you have all of these really good muscles of, of getting work done. Someone tasks you with something, you make, you know, a timeline, you meet all the deadlines and all of those things, and now you find yourself maybe not having so many deadlines or tasks, and you realize we work up these muscles of tidying up quite often. We do that with worship as well, and I think the author of Hebrews wants us to take a look at that idea of our worship being work. The ancient Israelites seem to have built up that muscle. Uh, God gave good reason for it. He gave good rhythms for uh, the worship service being what it is. But it seems like what the author of Hebrews is showing us is that through the blood of Jesus Christ, our worship is no longer a working towards righteousness, but rather it is a resting in the righteousness that we have through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so I want to look at this today and maybe ask the big question. We'll come back to this. We're going to go through the whole chapter, but we'll come back to this question of what do we do if our worship is no longer a process of getting our purification, but rather we start as purified, as good, as right, and then we go into worship. And so we'll come back to this, but I want to go through the whole text because I think that might be the underlying question that our, that our author is, uh, is answering for us. So if I could summarize the book of Hebrews, this will be kind of your outline and the, and, and the main point of today. If I could summarize Hebrews in one sentence, I think that sentence would be, nothing can purify us completely but the blood of Jesus Christ, which forgives sin and changes our worship. And then... Kind of from that, what do we do with that sentence? So eagerly await the fullness of his salvation. We're going to take that first sentence apart in maybe three different ways, um, just as part of our outline as, as we go through the sermon, to just focus on those parts. Uh, the first part is going to be, uh, nothing can purify us completely. And so you're going to have to get a little bit imaginative here. Uh, we're going to go on, on kind of a, 
And the first, uh, the first few verses here are kind of what I, I envision to be kind of this short documentary. Maybe you know this like seven-minute YouTube video on, on, uh, on the temple or the, the tabernacle worship. And so as we kind of go through our text here, starting in verse 1, it seems as though, if we imagine here, uh, that, that we have this screen. You know, we push play, and then and the screen's black, and it kind of fades from black. And as it's fading, the narrator says in this like silky, smooth, smoky voice, Now, even the first covenant, this is totally not my voice, but uh, now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. And then, you know, kind of it opens up and we go through the clouds here and the camera descends to see this earthly place of holiness, a tent very similar to the image on the screen that we've got here. So this is our tent. So if you want to like simulate it here, you can like use your fingers as the clouds and it's and we kind of flow through there. Now everyone just thinks that we kid and immature. I thought it was fun. Um, the, uh, and so we, so we descend in on this thing, and, and, and we're looking at this, and the camera continues its descent. It flies through the structure, and it says, for a tent was prepared, the first section, in which there was a lampstand and a table, the bread of presence. So we're, we're even beyond this first outer, outer thing here. We've gone in through that first purple curtain there. It says, you go in there, and you see that there's a lampstand, a table with the bread of presence. It's called the holy place. And behind this second purple curtain is a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. And then our narrator says, of these things, we cannot speak in detail. So I will not speak of these in too much detail either today. But what I want you to note here as we've gone through this and see what their structure is, uh, maybe take note for later in the sermon that, that there, are, there are some features here. There's an ark. There's a curtain. There are angels. There's a lampstand. Jesus is going to change worship through his blood so that each one of these features, which proclaim and foreshadow His glory, are going to be fully realized. We'll get there, but we've got to go through a pretty bloody path here to get there. And so, having uh, set the scene with the features, now the camera, as we see, it kind of pans over and we see the people that are in this, in this, in this space. We see the, the priests who are entering regularly into this first section to make their offerings, make their sacrifices. And then it kind of narrows in on this one priest, the high priest. And we see him going into the second section. But he's not going alone. He's, uh, he's taking blood with him. And this blood here, as our, as, our, uh, as our narrator, as our author says in verse 7, it's for the unintentional sins of the people. And he also takes it for himself. And so there's this blood that's going in. At that point, we're sitting next to the couch to each other, and I hit pause, and I got to ask the question, whoa, 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 what, what's going on with this blood here? Like, what, why do we need the blood here? Everything was real great. Everything was real wonderful. Why the blood? And as a matter of fact, why is there so much blood all the time in the Bible? And maybe you've asked this question. Maybe people have asked you this. Why is Christian such a, Christianity such a bloody religion? Um, and if you are a Christian, you maybe, maybe you grew up in the church, and, uh, and as we'll sing, you sing, uh, you know, after the sermon, we're going to be singing a song about the blood of Jesus. 
and you've, you've kind of learned that this is a good thing. This is a thing that we love, that we cherish, that we're grateful for, the blood of Jesus. And uh, we don't actually know specifically why this blood is here, but when we read the Old Testament, I don't know any Christian who has, has said, I'm going to start reading the Old Testament, and at some point pauses and says, whoa, they were really into blood back then. It's pretty overwhelming. And so sometimes society says those Christians are bloody, and, and oftentimes Christians say those ancient Israelites were pretty bloody. What's going on with all this blood? And so I just want to pause here in this first section and, and address this. What, what do we do with this blood? Maybe four ways of, of understanding the purposes of blood uh, throughout the Bible. Uh, this may not, be, may not be a complete you know, list of, of the function of blood, um, but I feel like it's pretty good. Um, so here's uh, the first function would be as it's an evidence of death. Uh, in Genesis 9, uh, we, get this, uh, we get this understanding that uh, there is life in the blood. And so there's something with this idea of not just bloody, that we're a bloody people. It's that we understand there's life associated. It's representative. It's evidence uh, of, of a life that has gone. This is why you get uh, a lot of times in the Old Testament, you get uh, a whole bunch of uh, regulations that say... Um, that, the, um, that we were not to, uh, that were to avenge uh, any kind of murder that's there. Uh, m- meat was not meant to be eaten with the blood because of, of something that's going on there. The other spilling of blood throughout uh, the Old Testament is, is, you know, is grounds for calling it unclean. And we even get uh, King David. He's not able to build the temple because he spilled blood in war. And so we get this idea that there's something about blood and the life that's there that, that's that we have a God who is life, we just saying about that, and death cannot enter the presence of this holy God. And so there's something that we understand in this through this evidence of blood. And maybe I want to pause there even more because this is a really tough question that we, we, we often get asked or, or accused of, is what about this blood here? I think this gives us enough, that there's life in the blood. If we follow the logic of the Bible, it's pretty simple but pretty profound is that in, in, Genesis, uh, in Genesis 9, it says that blood represents the life, and, there's, and blood represents a passing of life, so death. We also get, after Jesus shed his blood, in, in, in the book of Romans, we get this idea that the wages of sin is death. And so when we take this idea that there's, there's, there's life in the blood, and the wages of sin is death, just two very simple statements. What that means is that we're not really a bloodthirsty people, but we're rather a people who understand sin. Because sin to death to blood. I think that there is a lot of blood in the Bible because there's a lot of sin in our hearts. That's a big, important thing for us to remember. So if anyone ever asks, why so bloody? We say, why so sinful? And we're going to see that this would never have stopped if it weren't for a sufficient sacrifice. If it weren't for a one-time necessary sacrifice, we would still be doing these things today. And so I want to, keep, I want to continue on uh, so as not to, to prolong this. So evidence of death is one purpose of blood. Um, there's forbearance of wrath. Uh, and so the wrath of God is not on the sinner. Uh, he's, he's holding back in, in a sense. We get an example of this in Exodus 12 at Passover. 
uh, where blood of a lamb, uh, you know, a lamb was killed, its blood was painted on the doorposts, on the doorframe, and as the angel of death goes through to execute the wrath that was promised, he sees, and that blood serves as a testament to the faithfulness of the people there, and then the, the wrath, uh, and then, then the wrath is, 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 there's forbearance of the wrath as he continues on there. We read this Exodus 12, uh, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. We even see uh, just before that, that, that God calls Israel its firstborn, and so we even see that through this whole Passover, that Israel is even saved from Egypt uh, in this bloody act of Passover. And so it's not just not doing anything with the sin. Jesus act, or God actually does something with the sin. A, f- a third function of blood is redemption for sin. Uh, you could call it atonement for sin. Leviticus 17:11 tells us that uh, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. And so this idea of, of atonement, um, it goes to uh, this, uh, this, this big uh, theological word of a, a propitiation. Something is, is set forth as a gift in place of the other. So a sacrifice, something dies in place of, of, uh, of the one who deserved that death. And maybe a fourth uh, purpose of blood in the Bible is then a cleansing for holiness. Leviticus 14, if you're doing the, the Bible reading plan uh, with many of us, uh, we're going through the McShane, uh, the McShane Bible reading plan, and right now, today, we're actually in Leviticus 14. So you can read all about the cleansing purposes of blood today. It has been referred to um, oftentimes by commentaries as, a, as, as like spiritual or religious detergent. You know, throughout the, throughout, the, throughout the Bible, you see many times, especially Leviticus 14, showing that the blood was used as this cleansing for holiness, um, kind, of, uh, kind of an example there. So we see maybe a couple of examples. Just as I'm sitting here on the couch wondering why on earth the blood, it's evidence of death, uh, it's, it's forbearance of wrath, it's redemption for sin, it's cleansing for holiness. Keep that in mind because Jesus is going to fulfill every single one of those. But we feel satisfied enough, or at least I do, and I'm running the, uh, you know, the, the, the remote. I push play, and we watch the rest of our little documentary here. And the narrator starts to tell us again as he concludes this little fly-through of the old, of the old temple, or the old tabernacle. And he, uh, and he says, this is verses 8 through 11, By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is the symbol, or which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are often offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. And then it's done. You know, and then it goes to some like cheesy Tide commercial or something. But like, nah, nah, nah. Um, but the uh, it kind of leaves you just with a what? like that was a downer. Like, really, like you gave me that whole wonderful explanation of what's going on here, and then you say, but this this couldn't do it. It's lacking. It makes us want more. I think that's the point of our author. Nothing 
can purify us completely. No work, no sacrifice, no, no nothing, no good behavior. Nothing can purify us completely. Nothing can remove that sin completely. And then we get to our next point. Nothing can purify us completely but the blood of Jesus Christ. Verse 11, but when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats um, and calves, but by the mean of his own blood. How much more with the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience. Uh, this is fantastic. There's a word here that starts in the ESV. It's the first word of verse 11, and it is a big one. Uh, it is but. What, what, what we read there is all of this stuff happened, but there was something that solved it. And that solving it is the blood of Christ. Nothing that they did every year over and over again could ever satisfy the sin except the blood of Christ. Now, this, uh, this, I want to see now, bringing back those categories of what does blood do in the Bible or what is the function of blood. We see that blood symbolizes death or it gives evidence of death. Now, we see this on the cross. Jesus died. He bled. It's not because we worship the blood that he, he bled on. We understand that in that blood was his death. His death is really what we're focusing on when we sing about the blood of Jesus. And in uh, sacrificing himself, he covers all of that sin. This is that idea of redemption for sin. It's, it's atoned for. In Leviticus 16, we get this idea, this, this idea of, um, of a, a scapegoat. that they, they put the sins on this goat and they send him out. And so all of our sins are on him and go. And Jesus comes and he is that. He takes all the sin upon himself. Isaiah 53 says this. He was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquity. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. They are put on him. Jesus is doing this on the cross. And he goes out and he dies. He goes away to a place that we don't go. He dies a death that we don't have to. Romans 3 uh, 21 through 25 is beautifully explains this. He says, but now the righteousness of God has been made known apart from the law. The law had repeated sacrifices, which could not do this, could not take care of our sin. But Jesus in his sacrifice could. The righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. When we believe that his blood forgives our sin then we are forgiven. There's no distinction. We've all sinned. And we can be justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. That's amazing that the blood is redemption. And we see this in the Old Testament. And Jesus comes and says, I will pay for it. Jesus paid it all. We sing this song. This is it. He's redeeming it. And this is right here in the text as well. He brings this up several times. This is our redemption. The time of redemption has come. Romans 3 continues on in verse 25. This Jesus God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. He is that gift in place of us taking, uh, taking the wrath of God. He forbears it, but he also takes care of it. Having atoned for sin, there is no longer forbearance of wrath. Jesus takes care of this. 
The time of reformation has come. That's what, that's what our author in Hebrews says in verse 10. In verse 15, our author says, a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. This is because Jesus has taken our sin upon himself. By his wounds, we are healed. This is why John the Baptist so insightfully can see this. And he declares in John 1, when he sees Jesus, behold, the Passover, Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's incredible. That's incredible. So it doesn't simply just die. He doesn't simply die and then pay for the sin. He doesn't simply die, pay for the sin, and forbear sin. He goes in and washes us fully with his blood that only his blood can do. He cleanses us from our sin. Though the earthly temple sacrifices were able to cleanse people for a time and make them okay for the week, and then they came back, and the point of their worship was to then get clean again for the week. The blood of Jesus was offered once for all, that's verse 12, to secure an eternal redemption, also verse 12. Uh, It's as though the better high priest has entered the better tent and offered a better sacrifice with better blood to bring about a better purification. The blood of bulls and goats cannot purify the conscience of the worshiper, but the blood of Jesus, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish, can purify our conscience from dead works to serve a living God. This is great news. I I love this. I I oftentimes think that, you know, the blood of Jesus, great. This is an idea that Christians love to think about. It just talks about how God's okay with us now, or we confess our sins, or maybe it makes us feel guilty, and we just say, oh, someone had to die for that. I don't think we understand entirely the weight of our sin. Um, You know, it's not that Jesus had to die, and all of this had to be bloody because there were so many sins, I mean, that's part of it. There are so many sins. But if we narrow it down, actually, um, not even one sin could be atoned for completely. And that's a disruption to the way that God created things. That one sin required Jesus to sacrifice. It required Jesus' blood and his alone. And then we go on sinning and sinning and sinning. I had a professor, um, I studied Spanish in, in college, and several of my friends were, uh, they were doing translation uh, for medical and, and legal translation. And so, uh, so that was intense. I didn't go to that class. Um, but the, uh, here's the reason why, is because uh, in the medical side, the medical translation, um, Dr. Gonzalez was the, uh, was the professor. He, um, he would do this exercise, and I always knew when my friends were going to class because they were just like, They'd just cry on the way to class. It was just, it was, it was awful. Um, so this is how he would quiz them. He'd say, you know, basically the point he's making is, you don't have time when someone's in cardiac arrest to go flip through your dictionary. You just got to know everything. You got to know all that medical jargon on the fly. You have to be fluent there. So he would test them literally by walking by and he'd get to your desk and he'd say, this person needs three units of whatever immediately to one, the dead, because you couldn't translate fast enough. 
And then he'd walk over to the next person and be like, this person is having a, heart, uh, a cardiac arrest right now. We need, you know, defibrillators in to one. And if you didn't translate by the time he got done, he'd literally out loud, be, they're dead because you didn't know. Obviously, this is a horrible way to teach people, but he'd be like, he was just destroying people's lives. I'm sure they're all in counseling. I wasn't because someone told me, and I'm like, I'm not taking that class. And so I'm just here like dancing on their ashes, I guess. The, um, but, but I mean, that's so intense. But that lesson helped me not being in it, but hearing from it, what if we thought about our own sins, each individual sin that same way? I don't think we do that. We're so far distant removed from death. I mean, we prayed for war in Ukraine. I'll be honest, I, I, I get some of that, but, but Ukraine seems like a, a shape on a map. And then I see drawings of where the troops are, and that's how I understand. I mean, we're so far away. I mean, we get pictures of some things, and that kind of brings us closer. But we don't have that, that visceral kind of feeling as, uh, as we probably should have towards death. I mean, another way is just in, in food that we eat. I would be willing to guess most of us don't regularly butcher every piece of meat. We don't see the loss of life. Now, I'm not making a case for whether that's cruel or not, or we should do it, or what, any of that kind of stuff. We don't see death happen in front of us. And so it makes this really strange. But maybe if Dr. Gonzalez and the butcher can teach us something, what if we thought of our sins, each individual one? Before we did that sin, something will die. Something has to die. If I ask that question, I know that's going to start gossip. Whoa! If I look at that picture, that's where we're at, and that's why we need the blood of Jesus for each and every single sin. Someone did die for that. There is a great gravity of sin that's there in depth and in width. And Jesus' blood, as we read on, is able to purify completely. Verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ purify our conscience from dead works? I love that. I need that because I am just a, a mental, emotional nutcase. I get so into just the things I do, I then just, just emote these things and think through these things and mill on these things. If any of you has a conscience that continues to tell you, remember that thing you did 30 years ago? Remember that thing you said? Remember what you didn't do and you should have done? All of that guilt, which then you come and you think, I don't know, I've heard people say this so many times, I don't know if I can even come into the, the church. I feel like God's gonna strike me with lightning. I mean, this is a real thing that we feel. It's not that God said, hey, legal status, you're good. He did. He didn't stop there, though. It's not that God said, we're reconciled. We have a great relationship now. He did. But he did more than that. It's not the relationship. It's not the legal status. He drives it all the way. He takes all of those things, and he drives it right into your conscience. This passion takes us there. You don't have to have doubts that God loves you. You don't have to have worry or guilt or shame. The author of Hebrews is saying that sacrifice happened. And that's going to change your worship. And he seals it then with a covenant. He's a better priest in this passage. He's also a better mediator. 
Having purified completely, his, uh, he secures his, by his death an eternal inheritance. Now, there's this language here that's in verse 15. He, therefore, he's a mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive a promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgression committed under the first covenant. For where, there, where a will is involved, the death of one who made it must be established. He's playing on the words here a little bit. That's the same word of covenant and will, like last will and testament. So he likens it to this. He says, well, you have a, a written last will and testament. And how does that actually turn into something that matters? Someone dies. So also, the new covenant, something died, which the wording is, inaugurated us into this thing. There's an inheritance that's, in, that's described here. Most will, last will and testaments have an inheritance and they have to deal with what's going on here. So also does the new covenant. And there are beneficiaries of this, the believers. And what are those stipulations there, those, those, the, the inheritance? Uh, a longer version would be back in chapter 8, verses 10 through 12. Brandon unpacked that beautifully last week. Uh, that there, there's so many of the promises. I will do these things for you. Our author, though, we don't need to go back there to get it. He summarizes this. He says that there is an eternal redemption. Your sin's been paid for. You're good. He even summarizes this if we go a little bit further ahead here in verse 22 to say, what is this, uh, what is this eternal inheritance, this eternal redemption? He puts this into maybe more plain language for today. He says there is a forgiveness of sins. Your sins are forgiven. And so having atoned for sins, having redeemed us, having, uh, having cleansed us, he then, he then moves into that place of worship. Nothing can purify us. This is point three. Nothing can purify us completely but the blood of Christ, which forgives sin and changes our worship. There's our entire sentence summary of the chapter. See in verse three, there's the word thus. He's built everything up to this point. Thus, we're going to conclude. Thus, uh, it was necessary that our great high priest enter the very presence of God to open an eternal way to our Father. That's my summary there. All of this took place because it was necessary that Christ go before God. Now, there's a, uh, there's a uh, commentary that's been really great. Some of, the, some of the life group leaders have this. It's by uh, Michael Kruger, Hebrews for You. It's a very easy, accessible read. I find it incredibly helpful. You can get a copy at the, uh, the welcome desk uh, out there. But I'm going to read a little bit of this, of just how he explains what happens when Jesus necessarily enters into uh, the, uh, the true things. That's verse 24, into the, the true things of God. Uh, Michael Kruger says this, remembering, uh, uh, looking at, at Revelation 4, remembering the temple, this is Jesus, the high priest, entering in. He says, in Revelation 4, we see that the symbols of the earthly tabernacle have a true heavenly counterpart. The earthly tabernacle had a door or a curtain. And so the heavenly one has a door, and it stands open. That's Revelation 4.1. The earthly ark of the covenant was understood to be a symbol of God's throne, but in Revelation, we see the real throne, verse 2. On top of the earthly ark were these golden angelic creatures. But in Revelation, chapter 4, verse 8, they are real angels and they surround the throne. 
In this heavenly tabernacle, we even have a sevenfold lampstand, which would be sevenfold bright. But this one, it shines with the very power of God's Spirit. That's Revelation 4 5. And so, what happened here? So, Christ did what no human being ever had done. He went into the throne room representing his people before God's presence. That's the reality. What we're doing now is a copy of that. What they did then was a copy of that. And so the question, this gets us all the way to the question I asked at the beginning. What do we do with our worship? If back then in the first covenant, they would gather together so that they would end up purified. What do we do now that if we are believers and confess our sins and are forgiven by God, what do we do with our worship now? Because if that's you, if you are a Christian, a true believer, when you walked in today, you started this service purified. Maybe three suggestions on what we would do. We would worship responsively. There's no longer a need for worship to purify your conscience. You start purified through faith so you can respond to the gift of God. And the gift of God, we we ask in our family, what do you do when you receive a gift? This is just a thing that Casey's do. Our our kids are going to be so weird for it, but maybe they'll be good for it. Uh, What do you do with a gift? You receive it, you say thank you, and you enjoy it. That's what you do with a gift. And so if Christ has been offered as a gift for us and we no longer have to work for our own purification, but now we start as purified, this gift of God, what do we do in our worship? We worship gratefully. We worship as receivers. And we worship with joy. Those should be the characteristics of this. We humbly receive what God is doing, not crafting our own thing, Not taking the gift and saying, oh, that's not exactly what we want. We want to switch it here or there. But we take it, we say thank you, and we enjoy. And so this worship responsibly, maybe maybe I want to land it a little bit further because we need to feel this a bit. We need to feel our sin, but we also need to feel the satisfaction of God's God's forgiving blood uh, over this. So if, if this is you, just speaking directly to you there, Christian. You can praise God for releasing chains. This is part of what this text means for us. The weight is lifted. It wasn't just Jesus nailed to the cross. The book of Colossians chapter 2 tells us your guilt was nailed to the cross as well. You don't have to keep score with yourself and your expectations of what you should be or with other people. You can assume the best in people. You can give yourself a break. You can let God judge. That's what this text means for us today in our conscience. Uh, you, can try to fa- you can try and fail, and guess what? God will still love you. Or on the other side, you can become overwhelmed. You can delay. You can drag your feet. You can quit, and God will still love you. You can lift up your hurt, your anger, your fear to God, and he will draw near. You can attempt real, valuable conversation with people. One of our values here at Stonebridge is uh, eternal truth over empty talk. This text really invites us into the true things of God. 
I wonder what it would be like if, if the people of Stonebridge were a people who had this weird way of talking in which we didn't look at the superficial fights that happen here or there or the mundane details of every single day, uh, but rather we saw those as the curriculum and we said, where is the gospel in this? I wonder how we can understand Jesus Christ more and, and, and the need for the person there. What if our conversations were seen as opportunities for the eternal? This would be wonderful. I think maybe one other application of this worship uh, as response is that we could give presence because we've received it. You can invite people over even to your home. And I think sometimes we think of, of hospitality in a way of entertaining where we maybe wonder, is everything tidy? Is someone going to see that old dirty sock that I forgot that's you know, next to the piano? Um, and then they're going to think, oh man, this is a pigsty. I don't know. I've never met someone who, 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 would, who would really point that thing out. If rather than seeing those, you know, the mundane dirty, they would say, I think we just went to their house and experienced eternity. What if you gave them that? Another thing we can do is we can wait eagerly. If we don't come to worship uh, needing to be purified, we can wait eagerly. I get that from the last phrase, the most beautiful, wonderful thing is he's building this entire argument to this, to this urge that says, verse 28, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin. How great is that? Not to deal with sin. He's not coming back and he's going to be like, oh yeah, right, the list. Let's go through this. If you're a Christian who's been given, he says, done. And now the rest of this verse is for you. When Jesus comes back, he will come to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. The salvation that we speak of in the Bible is not a one time from unbelief to belief. That's not what salvation is in the Bible. It's this huge term that, that justification, redemption, sanctification, all of these things fall in it. The last of these, which is not there yet, we are all eagerly awaiting this, is called glorification when it all becomes new and good and right. We return to the completion, to shalom with God in his presence. We're waiting for that and we can eagerly await that. We don't have to think, think God, Jesus is coming back. He's going to drop the hammer, but rather he's going to start the party. That is eagerly awaiting and we can invite people into that, but it's only for those who believe and the last one would be we could live sacrificially. Uh, because there is no more need for the sacrifice, I love in, in the, the, the literary poet, poetic genius of the Holy Spirit as he inspires the authors. Uh, Paul in Romans 12 gives us purpose. He says there's no longer a need for a priesthood. You are that priesthood. That's in, that's in uh, uh, the writings of Peter. But then um, Paul says, but there's something you do. You offer sacrifices. As the new priesthood, you offer sacrifices and you offer yourself. Humbly, worshipfully, gratefully. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as living sacrifices. That's what we do. We extend presence. We, we calm down our calendars, not when that happens, but we make it happen. And then we sit there giving people presence as they need Romans 12, 1 continues, he says, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. There's our worship. And getting into the wording there, it's our spiritual worship, our reasonable worship, our logical worship. This is the logical conclusion to our worship that the blood of Christ lands us. 
is to daily be offering ourselves as sacrifices. That's so sweet. There is purpose. As we eagerly await, we've got a whole lot of good stuff to do. Seize those opportunities for the eternal. And so, as we go today, as we return, as we will this afternoon, to the sticks in the lawn, to the toys under the couch, to the pile of paper, to the mounting emails, to the empty seat in the, in the back seat in the rearview mirror, I wonder if maybe we could do something, is, is we could take those, those places, and rather than just have them be experiences in life, or, or, or maybe just moments of frustration, or, or, or sadness, uh, or memory, if we seize those, and, and, and kind of the term is called make it an Ebenezer, make it a thing of remembrance, and we take those, and, and whenever you identify whatever that is for you, that thing that you always feel you need to tidy, or you always need to be doing, and when we go to that, Every time, from now till, till, till forever, maybe when you go to that thing, you pick that stick up or you pick that thing up, we maybe say, thank you, God, for your completed and complete work. I think this is kind of in that term we just sang about this morning, Hosanna. Thank you for saving us. Please come finish that salvation. To summarize Hebrews 9, as Nothing can purify us completely but the blood of Christ which forgives sin and changes our worship. So brothers and sisters, let's eagerly wait for the fullness of our salvation. Let's pray. God, we thank you. You are a good God. You are a God who expects much but God who offers even more. We thank you for the blood of Jesus. We thank you that it necessarily redeems us. It necessarily brings about forgiveness and necessarily cleanses us, purifies us even to the level of our conscience. We pray with this freedom we experience that we have nothing we can contribute other than faith. That you will help us fill our time and our freedom with humble service and sacrifice to you. In Jesus' name.